episode 60, 9th of January 2013. The Square Kilometre Array. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org The Square Kilometre Array is a global science and engineering project to build a revolutionary new radio telescope with extraordinary scientific ambitions. Funding from now 10 nations, the building of the SKA will start in 2016 and be fully operational in 2024. It will tackle some of the profoundest questions of cosmology associated with organic molecules, gravitational waves, pulsars orbiting black holes, and light from the earliest stars that illuminated the universe. To do this, the SKA will require supercomputers, innovative new power stations, and high-speed communication links requiring technology that currently does not exist. This interview with Professor Michael Kramer was recorded in March 2012 at the National Astronomy Meeting at the University of Manchester, two months prior to the announcement that the Square Kilometre Array will be built in South Africa, along with Australia and New Zealand. Professor Kramer from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy that manages the 100-metre Effelsberg Radio Telescope, is a former associate director at Jodrell Bank and still a professor there, talks about the technical, political and economic concerns associated with the SKA project. Professor Michael Kramer, welcome back to Manchester. Um, What's the connection that you have with Manchester in the past and even today and Effelsberg at the moment? Well, I'm still a professor at the University of Manchester. I used to teach here for 10 years, and then I got appointed as a director of the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy born about three years ago. Mm. And that means I've been also becoming the, the appropriate director for, for Effelsberg. So, uh, now that you're back in Manchester, it must be a, a good opportunity to catch up with old friends, uh, places, maybe favourite restaurants? Absolutely, yes. Uh, as you can get good food, Chinese, Indian and Thai food in Manchester, so it's excellent, yes. <laughs> Just remind us, what is the Square Kilometre Array? The Square Kilometre Array is uh, the radio telescope that is going to be built in the Southern Hemisphere, either in South Africa or Western Australia. And it will be uh, the biggest telescope ever built on Earth with a collecting area of one square kilometre. And so it will be a huge sensitivity that we have available. It will be 100 times the Effelsberg telescope collecting area, or 10 times Arecibo. So it's a major step towards uh, more sensitive observations. It's a square kilometre. Now, physically, it won't be in a square-shaped box (laughs) somewhere, whatever it is. Geographically, once it's in place, what will it look like? It will be because we want to cover a wide frequency range from a few tens of megahertz up to 10, 20 gigahertz or so. So we will have to use different receiver technologies. So what we do is for the high frequencies, we will use smaller dishes, but indeed not 
one square kilometer big dish, but in fact made out of many thousands of small dishes, probably between 10 and 15 meters, because that's uh, the probably most cost-effective solution. And these small dishes will be connected with optical fiber to a supercomputer center. And for the lower frequencies, we have other receiving elements, uh, mostly aperture rays, which can offer type telescopes which can look at the whole sky at the same time, and you can combine them by the computer to form this, uh, this big collecting area. And you concentrate essentially half of your collecting area in a radius of just five kilometers, so very dense. Mm-hmm. And then you also have stations of telescopes further out, up to 3,000 kilometer distance, to get some resolution in your images. It won't be geographically in one place it will extend over a very large area and will have fiber connections and have a range of uh, different type of um, receivers to address the different frequency ranges that you'd be looking at that's correct so it's essentially the size of continent and uh, where the core is uh, concentrated but it that extends to the size of a continent yes where is it going to be well, it's either South Africa or Western Australia. There's an international competition going on right now. There, um, both countries, or actually is a, these are joint proposals by a, a set of Southern African countries and on one side and Australia and New Zealand on the other side. They have submitted their side bits. Uh-huh. These have been evaluated. And now the evaluation reports are being studied. And over the next few weeks, or maybe months, depends on how long it takes to study these reports, there will be a, a committee deciding uh, where it's going to be. And when do you expect the decision to be made? I think it's a, it's a very difficult decision to make. Right. So I, don't, I haven't seen the expert panel reports on the citing, um, but I imagine that um, it, it will not be a pure scientific decision, it will be part of a political decision as well, mm. which is understandable because um, if governments want to give money for the project, they probably expect something in return, mm. so uh, it will also depend which government is willing to spend more on a project than others. So I think it's a, it's, it's a complicated process, I think, and at the end we try to get the best side for the science. The, is there a schedule? Is there, are you expecting a decision to be made by a particular... Uh, Officially, the schedule was, was such that the decision was expected last month. <laughs> so that didn't happen. Um, there is ongoing discussion. Um, there's another meeting scheduled for April. But again, I don't think they will be in a position to make a decision yet. But I think over the summer, the latest, um, we will know where it's going to be. A, a location with very little artificial radio noises. Are there any other technical requirements that dictate the geo- geographic location? Certainly. I mean, the, the radio quietness of the site is probably f- the most important criteria because um, the telescope will be so sensitive, every, every artificial source of radio emission will be a huge signal that will be much, much stronger than any cosmical signal that we want to find. Mm-hmm. So that will be the foremost criteria. But there are other things to consider, like... Um, what are the infrastructure costs? What are the energy costs? I mean, this, um, the telescope will probably need about 100 megawatts of energy. And um, because we have so much digital and computing equipment that need to be run and cooled as well because it will be in a hot place on mm. Earth. And so 
all these factors have different, and, it, and then there's atmospheric conditions as well, because the atmosphere and to some extent also the troposphere, they need to have certain conditions. So if you want to connect telescopes across large distances, mm-hmm. you don't want the, the atmosphere to um, mingle up the signal studied. I always thought the conditions of the atmosphere were only a concern to optical astronomers, but that not is, so. That is, of course, largely correct. Yeah. But if you, the easiest to think about is the ionosphere. So you have ionized particles in the upper atmosphere. And so if radio waves propagate mm. through the ionosphere, they interact with the electrons in the ionosphere. And that would make some small, subtle differences in the wavefront that arrives at your telescope. And when you want to combine two um, separated telescopes, you basically would try to see, do you correlate them as you call them, which means you compare the signal of one telescope to the signal of the other telescope and try to find those parts which are identical and that then is supposed to come from the same celestial source. So if you have the atmosphere mingling up that signal, you may not be able to find that other corresponding part between the two telescopes. Right. And so yeah, the atmospheric uh, contribution must be as broad as, as, as possible. Mm. There's a little bit of light and data observing as well, but for most cases, you're right, we don't care. <laughs> One of the uh, uh, requirements you have is it's, it's uh, radio quiet, so it used to be, should be away from populated areas. We also mentioned a very large power source, 100 megawatts. Now, those two things usually don't go together. So how are you going to address the very large power requirements for... Well, it depends, again, on, on, on where which side is going to win the bid. But um, um, you could imagine a solution where on some side it's connected to the power grid and then right. you have to shield the power lines bringing the energy to the mm-hmm. to the core of the telescope on the other hand if you imagine it's being powered by solar power then indeed you have to uh, build a power station that doesn't cause any radio interference and so um, it is possible, but it needs to be a dedicated sort of study being done. How RFI interference causing such a power station is going to be? And yes, you need to build it in a way that it doesn't. So, do you envisage some scenarios where you actually would have to build a power station to provide the power supply? I think it depends on the side. Both yeah. sides are a relatively remote side, and then it depends on the yeah. on the countries uh, whether they want to provide grid access or not. And um, so in, in some cases this may be possible, in some cases they are not. If you imagine, for instance, that some of these remote stations that are up to 3,000 kilometers away, they may sit at, at places which are really off the grid. Mm. And then you may want to find a self-contained energy solution. I mean, one possible solution is, of course, using solar energy. But And there you would then have a self-contained power station. Producing the power via solar power is, is actually not a problem. It's the, the night storage that you need to run a telescope 24 hours a day. That's a challenge. You also mentioned a supercomputer. Mm. Now, that a, will require power as well, but um, the kinds of supercomputers that you're looking at, because it's a huge amount of signal you're collecting, do those supercomputers exist at the moment, or are you hoping to, that something will come along in, in the future? Um, 
we do need extra flop computers, which means they need to do 10 to the 18 um, floating point operations a second of that order of magnitude. This is what you need to process the signals that we receive from the telescopes. Mm-hmm. Um, these extra flop computers do not yet exist. Um, petaflop computers we do have, which is also the next step underneath. Um, but there is ongoing effort across the world to provide these accessible computers by the time the SKA will need them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the colleagues in, in the computer science departments, they ensure me that this is possible. So that, is, that won't be a problem. Indeed. What sort of quantity of data are you expecting? Because I know in CERN one of the problems, one of the issues is this very large amount of data that uh, picked up at each experiment. I think CERN is a good example that can teach us how to deal with these large data right. rates. Mm-hmm. And, and so the SK community has been talking to, to CERN uh, people to, to learn. Right. And I mean, this tier approach that they have, that is sort of have a different levels of processing, then sort of one level sensitive to the next level across the world. And so you spread out and farm out, out the data for the processing. I think that's something that would also work for the SK in some extent. On the other hand, um, we do get about 100 terabit per second data coming into the computing facility. That's a data rate that is beyond anything that we are able to handle today. So you can just repeat that number again? 100 terabit per second. 100 terabit per second? So if you <laughs> multiply that with, uh, by 86,400 seconds a day, you end up having an exabyte that is uh, 10 to the 18 bytes per day. And that, someone has calculated, is more data than humankind has produced in all its uh, existence. So one, the, the data per day from the SKA will be more data than humankind has produced in its history. And that's incredible. I just can't visualize that. Are you expecting to be able to keep that amount of data every day? Or no, you have that, to... That would be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is getting cheaper, but not that cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe another flooding in Thailand. And, uh, drive up the prices. No, the, uh, no it is. We have, we have no illusion. We will not be able to uh, right. save that data. And that's why we do need a supercomputing facility very close by the telescope, so we stream the data into the super supercomputer and literally have to reduce the data to a much slower data rate, which then can be sent off to other supercomputer centers um, nearby or even across the world. What's the role for Manchester once the SKA is operational? Well, it's, it's interesting that Manchester is kind of sort of the, the birthplace of the SKA, so it's kind of a um, circle is closing. Peter Wilkinson from, from Total Bank um, slash Manchester had proposed the hydrogen array in the early 90s and, and, and pointed out that we need a square kilometer connecting area to make some significant advances in, in radio astronomy. That's apparently what we're going to, to build. So um, that was good foresight. And um, so now the, uh, the SKA is in a phase where the construction is being prepared and the organization that is preparing this construction has its headquarter uh, at Jodl Bank. And uh, so Manchester at the moment is, as it has over the last few years, is coordinating the SKA activities across the world. At some point, I assume that uh, once the, uh, the, the telescope has been built, the, the headquarters may move to that country site, uh, whatever. Mm. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, uh, look at the European Southern Observatory. The headquarters is in, 
in Garching near Munich, and yet most of the telescopes are on the southern hemisphere. So um, I think that that is up to be discussed, but I suppose that the country that wants to host it, the SKA also wants to host its headquarters. I think it would be quite natural to expect that it eventually moves away from Manchester, but that's sometime in the future. But currently it's the operational centre for the SKA as it develops is Manchester. That's correct. Once the SKA is in place, the big telescopes like Effelsberg, the Jodrell Bank, mm-hmm. they become a bit of a backwater because what they can do then is minuscule compared to the SKA. Most of the big telescopes nowadays they are in the Northern Hemisphere, while the SKA is clearly built in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. So we certainly need to attain some sensitivity in the Northern Hemisphere to do the science from here and look at the sky objects um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and yes, it's probably unlikely that we're going to build a telescope bigger than 100 meters in the northern hemisphere with right. the SKA in the south. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, there will be plenty of work still to be done uh, for the northern telescopes, not only because of the geographical arguments, but also uh, we want to train students. I don't think many astronomers will ever travel to the SKA to get their data. Yeah. They mm. land in their inbox or maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a big package on the desk, I don't know. Yeah. But you do need to train great astronomers. You want to do this um, with excellent telescopes, so mm-hmm. these telescopes will have their right and, and, and purpose. And then also, of course, you want to do very long baseline interferometry. So you want to connect these dishes to get very intercontinental baselines. Cost. Mm-hmm. It's quite expensive. 150 billion euros. 1.5 billion. Sorry, 1.5 billion euros. Yeah. And we're also in the UK and Europe at, in the midst of a quite a tough financial situation. Is there likely to be any impact of the financial environment on the decision that's going to be taken, hopefully soon? Maybe. Uh, it's absolutely possible. I mean, the, um, I think science funding does undergo a serious um, period right now due to the economic crisis. But on the other hand, actually, I think $1.5 billion sounds expensive. Um, but uh, for an observatory of that scale and its flexibility and the number of users it will have... I think it's a price that is not more expensive than sending satellites into space. Yes, it is not insignificant, certainly, but it's a telescope that will last for at least 50 years, and it's probably the global radio wavelength observatory that the world will see. Of course, yes, we have to find the money, one hasn't been, one must not underestimate the, the problem. Um, the nice thing about the SKA is that unlike a normal research facility, you mm-hmm. can do science before it's actually been completed. So you, you, you can basically have a um, relatively constant funding st- um, stream, so you don't need to have the 1.5 billion today or over the next six months or whatever. So you can stretch the, the construction over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And that allows you, I think, to, um, to see how the economy develops, how f- much we can afford to extend the telescope from an initial size to, to make it bigger. And finally, whenever astronomers build a new instrument, mm-hmm. they never know what they're going to discover. There's always that surprise to look forward to. But knowing the technology, what sort of things are you expecting the SKA to help discover? It's the flavour of a few things. 
um, yes, of course, we don't. We push in the parameter space in terms of unknown so much. We will make new discoveries that we don't know, and probably it's these new discoveries for which the escape will become famous. Um, but we can plan some of the discoveries, right? And, and one of them will be, for instance, we will discover essentially all the pulsars that are in the galaxy and pointing the, the radio beam towards us. Mm-hmm. And among these maybe 30,000 pulsars, there will be lots of exciting uh, compact binaries that will allow us tests of general activity. We expect to find the first pulsars orbiting a black hole, maybe a stellar black hole, but certainly the, the galactic center, supermassive black hole. So um, we'll find that for sure. Mm-hmm. We, we will detect gravitational waves. Oh, I like the confidence. We will detect gravitational waves. Oh, yes, yeah. we, will. <laughs> we know they exist. Yeah. So, um, yeah. if the uh, if the ground-based detectors like Advanced LIGO won't have seen it by the time, I think the SK is is certain to detect them. Huh. And um, and using pulsars as, as gravitational wave detectors, we will also be know we will we can survey a billion galaxies and and basically watch the universe expand. And, and that will tell us a lot about the mysterious dark energy and, and whatever it is. Um, we can um, we can see the transition from sort of the neutral cold universe after it cooled, uh, cooled down from the Big Bang to the uh, warm ionized medium um, that we see today with the stars and galaxies and, and black holes sort of heating the, 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 the universe. So we see the transition from the neutral to the ionized. Um, Mm-hmm. Universe and, and see how sort of the dark ages end and, and the bright universe begins. That's the transition from when there were no stars just after the Big Bang and then there were stars. Exactly, and that tells you a lot about the formation of stars, galaxies, mm-hmm. and the expansion of the cosmos and so on. Mm-hmm. We will understand. Um, Hopefully, how the magnetic fields in the cosmos sort of originated and what's the shape and the structure. Um, and we can uh, find new molecules, complex molecules in space. Um, if you want to find complex sort of amino acids, it's, it's the lower radio frequencies we may want to look at. And, and so this may have a context of how life can be created on, on, on planets. We can watch planets being created. So it is a whole variety of science you can do. And we sort of have this highlight science or key science project that we expect the SKA to be performing extremely well. But I think there's so many other things you can do because it is not a simple experiment. It, it is an observatory that uh, is flexible and can do so many different things that we just can't imagine today. Professor Michael Kramer, thank you very much indeed. You're most welcome.